Hello and welcome to Women Leading in Cannabis. I'm your host, Kira Reed. Thank you for joining us. Our guest today is Christine De La Rosa, CEO and co-founder of the People's Dispensary. Hello, Christine. Welcome to Women Leading in Cannabis. Hi, Kira. Thank you so much for having me. Christine spent 20 years as a systems and database architect in technology before coming to cannabis. She's a social entrepreneur who spent most of her adult life building businesses that creatively engage and employ the local communities that surround them. A history in technology, business consulting, and entrepreneurship were part of the trajectory that led to co-owning cannabis businesses in both California and Oregon. She is currently the CEO and national co-founder of the People's Dispensary. The People's Dispensary uplifts empowers and employs marginalized communities, creating a much-needed model for social equity in the cannabis industry. Her work has a palpable impact on people of color and LGBTQ communities. She's an advisory board member of the Access and Innovation Project and Cannabis Doing Good. Additionally, she is a member of Diversity, Equality, and Inclusion Committee for the National Cannabis Industry Association. It is so great to have you on the show, Christine. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Okay, so it's always good to start at the beginning. So how did you go from being a systems architect to the CEO of a cannabis dispensary? Well, um, I almost died. So yeah, Um, and I was at the top of my technology career. I consulted for all the major telecoms all across the U.S. I had been traveling for over 20 years doing the work that I was doing. And in 2007, I started to get sick but I didn't know what I was sick of. And I went to 22 doctors in Texas and California between 2007 and 2009, and they were trying to figure out what was wrong with me. And on Thanksgiving day, I had a pulmonary embolism that almost killed me um, on a highway on the 880 in the Bay Area. I was rushed to the hospital and spent seven days there while they did a slew of tests. And that is when they diagnosed me with systemic lupus and pretty aggressive. So it was about maybe three or four months after that, that I couldn't work anymore. Like I was really pushing myself. Cause you know, women, we do that. We push ourselves through our pain, through our, you know, mm-hmm. I'm like, uh, you know, really we do that. Um, and I just couldn't work anymore. So I had to quit my job and go on. Um, luckily I was working for Verizon wireless at the time. So I was able to do short-term disability and they let me keep my, you know, my insurance for a year after I had to go, um, which is really great for them. Uh, great of them to do for me. And so the next five years are just this blur of um, drugs uh, that the doctors are prescribing me. I was on 11 pills a day. Oh. And of those 11, five of them were opioids. Oh my God. And in order to walk, I had to go to the hospital once a month to get an infusion called Benlista so I could walk with a cane. Not that I could walk, 
that I could walk with a cane, that I could actually get up off a couch or off my out of my bed. So these are my five highest earning years. And you know, that's important in technology. Mm-hmm. And I'm over here unable to work. And one morning, well, I'm, it was, for some reason, holidays are a big deal for me. So like on, in 2015, on, you know, um, New Year's Day, I'm filling my, you know, super big pill, you know, pill, monthly pill bottle with my 11 pills a day. And I thought, my, my God, you know, I am 45. And if I'm taking these many pills and these many opioid drugs, what does this look like for me if I make it to 60? And that is when I really seriously started to to look at alternative alternative medicine. And everywhere I looked on the internet, because, you know, I'm a technology person, that's where I went. Mm-hmm. They kept talking about cannabis, CBD, THC, the combination. And so I started, got really curious. And a friend of mine was going to a Women Grow conference in Colorado. And she said, you should come with me. And I said, I can barely walk. She's like, take the bin list of treatment, come with your cane, I'll help you. And so I did go, I flew to Denver and I could really only manage because of my health was so bad to go to two events at Women Grow that year. One was um, a seminar called CBD and Me. And the second one was a seminar around BIPOC people in the cannabis industry. And those two seminars changed my entire life. I came back to Oakland totally feeling empowered to do something else. And I just started tying every cannabis product that they had at the medical dispensaries um, until I found a combination that worked for me, which was a CBD THC combination regimen all day. It took me about nine months to find it and nine months to get off all of the 11 pills and the bed list of treatment that I did monthly that I've been doing for four years. So that December, so by September of that year, I was able to do only a cannabis regimen, which I'm still on to this day. And in December, I went to see 11 doctors because I saw my cardiologist, my hematologist, like I can go down the list. Wow. And they, they saw me after four, four or five years of coming in with my, you know, hunched over. And they're like, what are you doing? You look fabulous. And every single one of them, I said, I'm not taking any of the medication you gave me. And that wow. is literally how I got into the cannabis because I felt great. I could have gone back to technology. I could have gone back to making quite a bit of money. But I was so angry, Kira, that there was this holistic plant. And, you know, lupus affects black women the most. Mm-hmm. Second is Latina women. And I was in groups of these women who were as sick as I was taking Plaquenil, which is the drug that, you know, um, they were saying would help with COVID. I mean, and I was just so angry because I was like, here we are sick, hunched over, barely able to function. And there's this holistic plan over here that we've all been shamed, especially as people of color. We're shamed about using cannabis. I mean, I remember my mother telling me, don't smoke marijuana because they're going to think you're a lazy Mexican. And so this propaganda that was put on specifically BIPOC communities, and I'm like, this thing healed me. Like, I can walk without a cane. I can get up. I can treat my pain and my flares with cannabis, and I have been sick in a bed taking fentanyl and Oxycontin to, for my pain for five years. I was hella mad. That is heavy duty. Fentanyl is no joke. No. And so that's why I got into the cannabis community, because I can go back to technology anytime. I'm really good at what I do. And cannabis, as you know, is not an easy industry. It's painful. But I'm doing it because I so believe that my life would have been cut so much shorter had I not found this. And how many of me's are out there, not only in the U.S., but in the world? Well, it's so interesting that it was because of a Women Grow seminar. Yes. So it it really goes to show, too, how important it is for us to continue to produce these kinds of events and share that education because you never know what brilliant woman you're going to inspire. That's exactly right. right? 
So what challenges and opportunities have you faced in the cannabis industry, being a woman and being a person of color? Oh my God. I know that you hear this probably on every one of your podcasts, but the number one is capital, right? Capital, capital, capital. I mean, capital is hard enough in any industry. I mean, as we know in VC money, only 4% of the VC money goes to people of color and 1% of that goes to women of color or, or to black women specifically. So capital is always the hardest thing as a woman because we are constantly being ignored. At, like we're constantly being ignored at being given money. I've seen cannabis companies with an idea, but not even a performa, not even a PPM, nothing go in and be like, cut me a million dollars. And they get cut a million dollars with an idea. I see women go in with their performers, their executive summaries, like everything that they need, showing that they have traction, they're in profitability, and they don't get the same money. And so as a woman, that is just offensive, right? I was, I was in a meeting with an investor in LA and he was so proud. He was like, oh yes, this company came in. It was just two guys with some Birkenstocks. They were from Berkeley. And he's like, and they're like, here's our idea. They didn't even have anything written. They said, this is our idea. He's like, he's like, we cut him a check for $5 million that day. Oh. I was like, it's painful. So that's the biggest thing as a woman, but also as a woman of color, because as a woman, already hard. As a woman of color, it seems almost impossible sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I read a lot about what you, that you focus on community building and then it's in your bio. It's, you talk about it a lot. I am also a community builder. And so I'm curious when you first realized that that was in you, that being a community builder was something that gave you joy and, and motivated you. Mm -hmm. And how does that manifest itself in your work today? Sure. I, you know, technology, I'm, I'm back from the, the days when it was first coming out, like I was at one of the first help desks um, for the internet when it was still, you know, you heard that really long modem, like, you know, it was, <laughs> like I was on, I was doing that work. Right. Um, and I've made such a lot, I made a lot of money in my lifetime because the particular thing that I had learned to do only 11 people at the time in the U S did it. So I could pretty much write my own check, but I'm, not somebody who's very much around things. So I started investing my money in creating businesses with other people. So I've created a couple of restaurants with friends. I've created a retail shop. I've created an art gallery um, with, with other folks. And we would always employ people of color. Like I was, we always centered them first. We, we employed women and we employed people that lived in that community. Because what I learned early on was that if I'm going to my neighborhood restaurant or my art gallery or my retail shop and I see Joe from down the block, I'm more willing to spend money and engage with them. And Joe is also knows me because he's seen me at the corner store. And so I just started to realize that we were building community by employing the people that surrounded us and also by engaging the community that supported us. And that's really when I first found out. So when we got into the dispensary side, we come from the informal market. I did not start in the, in the legal market. In Oakland, you were allowed to have a, co- um, a collective. And that meant that everybody had to sign a paper saying they're part of the collective. And then you could distribute cannabis. So we had a collective and we worked in the loft above our retail shop. So people came in, they signed it, they went up. And I thought we would service, you know, because I wanted to service medical patients, right? At that time, it was just medical. There was no recreational. So I figured, you know, I'd service some of the people from my lupus groups and my chronic pain groups. And we would service some people around the block. And within three months, we had 4,500 members. 
Wow. From around the, the community that surrounded us. This is us in the middle of Oakland surrounded by eight open legal medical dispensaries with way more, you know, types of products than we had in our little 300 square foot space. And it really hit me at that point. Um, but what we had been doing with the restaurants and everything else was really having community be supportive of us. And here we are 4,500 people deep really supporting us as well. And so it really struck with me that cannabis is not only a social, um, a social thing, but it's also a community thing. It allows us, it allowed us, it allowed us at the time to put money into communities, to give scholarships. If people came and they needed something, wanted us to do a food drive, we had the money to do it. And I just believe that we could transition that into the legal market. I want to ask you why you called it the informal market. I call it the informal market because actually to me, it is the market, right? People call it the illegal market, the illicit market, the black market, right? These are all terms that are used when it's uh, not white people. And there's no other way to put it except that plainly, because now 98, 94% of the ownership of the legal market is by white corporate people, mostly men. And they, that's okay. They're now the formal market, but actually the informal market is the one that struggled, built the clientele, built the education around cannabis in these small pockets all across the United States that allowed there to be a formal market. So I don't like to use black market, illicit market, illegal market, because I believe that that casts what people like me and people much older than me that have been doing this for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, legacy farmers have been doing for our communities for, for so long. And I don't want to besmirch their name. They're not illegal. They're not illicit. They're not the black market. They are literally what allowed for there to be a formal market. Words matter, don't they? They really do. So People's Dispensary is focused on employing marginalized communities. I'm curious what that has done for the company culture and the bottom line of your business, because we know statistically that it makes for healthier companies to hire a diverse workforce, but there's still so much resistance to implementing it for a lot of real companies that are corporate companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would really love to hear about the positive impacts that these kinds of decisions are having on your bottom line. I mean, not everybody gets to be a multi-state operator. You've done that's something right. right. Yes, that's true. I Well, for our bottom line, I'll tell you this. Our basket size is comparable to MSOs that have 14, 15, 16 um, uh, dispensaries across multiple states. Yeah. Our square footage, what we, we make in terms of sales per square footage is comparable to them as well. And we only have, you know, a couple, right? Um, so our bottom line is fairly healthy, but I think that there's ways that we can make it healthier. Um, but that requires that the cannabis industry understand that we are community. We're in community with the large MSOs. I don't have anything bad to say about large MSOs. I have nothing bad. I mean, you did it, you got it, you had you definitely had a, a easier way in than I did. But if you, it's like the way we talk about it. If you're already in, how do you take your good fortune, your access, your privilege to bring up and support the smaller mom and pop shops that maybe have one place or one in two places? How do you do that? And I think that that helps us if when they start to think that way to understand that they might make a little bit less money, but they're going to actually affect millions of people. If they could think about it and visualize it in that way, I think it would be so much more helpful to my bottom line. So for instance, I'm going to give you a for instance that happened really recently. 
we could not figure out why our pricing was always so divergent to the other bigger companies that were around us. Like we would be going on our computers to their online menus and being like, how are they charging $3 less for this flower from the same company that we buy from that exact same flower? Like, how are they doing that? If we were to do that, it would cost our profit margin would be 1%. Well, of course, they had 14 stores. Mm. So they were buying for 14 stores. So that bulk helped them. Additionally, we were like, well, how do they know to buy this flower? Well, because they were a big company, they were paying the thousands and thousands of dollars that BDSA charges these companies to get the data analytics for that state. Mm. How many pre-rolls? So there's a lot of places here where if we had access to that, we're never going to overtake a multi-state operator who has 14 stores. We're never going to overtake their profit margin. But just having access to the tools that they have access to would help us increase our profit margin and employ people and be there for communities that surround us that want to go to our store. So it's not a big step to say, how do we create a level, uh, an equitable, not level, an equitable playing field. And I have to say, and I'm going to shout them out, BDSA helped me do that. They had reached out to me last year and they were like, we want to offer this, consider social justice, social equity, free access to this to this um, BDSA platform that all these big companies have access to. And I was super excited, but I also was like, it's not fair for me to be the only one to benefit from this. I said, so I'll only do that and allow us to allow you to use the people's dispensary name as one of your partners. If you offer this to every social equity applicant that has an operating dispensary in the U S for free for a year. And to their credit, they did do that. So now we have the same access to the data, right? Data is important. Knowledge is power. Wow. That just got me teary eyed. That's amazing. Right. But see, I could have just been like, oh, we got it. I'm not going to let anybody know we got it. I'm not going to tell anybody else we got it. And I didn't do that because I know I'm not in competition with Blunson Moore in Oakland. I'm not in competition with, um, you know, uh, pharmacy in Berkeley. They're not my competition. They're my, they're my people. So how do we all do better? Well, that's the community builder in you. That's it. Yep. Right. You, you think through that lens and it's, it's shifting from a very masculine um, business model, which is about competition and moving into a more feminine approach, which is about co-opetition. That's right. <clears throat> so I heard a really powerful quote from you about social equity, where you explain that there is a real problem with the term social equity. Can you elaborate on that for us? Sure. Social equity implies that somebody is giving us something. It's often mistaken, and actually this happened to me with an investor back in 2018. I'm in New York. I'm at the Soho House meeting with an investor, and and I'm talking to them about our social justice and our social equity framework that we're building the company around. And he sort of shrugged me off and said, oh, I don't invest in social welfare. Oh, right. And I looked at him and I said, this is not social welfare, but that was the moment that I started really thinking about the term social equity, right? So let's, let's be really clear. There would be no legal cannabis industry if millions upon millions upon billions of dollars had not flowed through the informal market. Many of that coming from California and from Mexico, many of the people that were selling and, and distributing were black and brown people many of those people, like a majority of those people, right? And so 
there's a couple of things here to unpack. One is, of course, if you use the term social equity, it appears as if you're giving somebody something. This isn't, you're not giving somebody something. This is something they already had in a different type of market that they should be allowed to have in the formal market now that it's legal. So social equity doesn't encompass that. Social equity requires that you're giving me a handout. How are you giving me a handout about something I've already created? Social equity, governments love to talk about this, like, you know, we're going to have social equity and we're going to have this fund with all this money that we're going to distribute to all of these communities. And that's kind of their way of like being like, hey, you know, you should vote for this. Here's the problem with that. One, we're paying the taxes, you and me, Kira. Mm. We're you're just giving back, giving us back our own money, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You, you literally had billions and billions of dollars that you invested into the police forces to do the war on drugs. Where are those billions of dollars now that it's legal? You don't need those, but where's that being done? Why, why aren't you putting that into community, right? So there's, a, so social equity just is a, is a, to me personally, I know there are people that would disagree with me. It's just not an accurate term. And it allows people to think that they're giving us something that already belongs to us. And then they're repurposing the harm by finding different ways in which to put us in prison. So before you could go to prison because you were distributing cannabis. Now it's legal, but you don't give any pathways for people who are in the informal economy to join the formal economy so you can still incarcerate them. It's just a different way of doing it. So to me, social equity kind of encompasses all of the worst about the cannabis industry when we shouldn't be calling it as if you're giving, as if you're doing me a favor. It's already something that I owed. So what is the solution? What, okay, we're going to blow up social equity. Let's just, okay, we're, it's, we're getting rid of it the way we know it. How do we build back something that is more inclusive and that is about lifting people up as opposed to you know, social, the perception of social welfare. Right. So what you do is you create an amnesty program that allows for everybody is that's in the informal market right now, or who has ever been in the informal market pathways to come to the formal market without any of the fees. Mm-hmm. Because then you don't have to attach yourself to a predatory investor who's a white person. That's right. And that is, and that's like, this is not rocket science. Like I'm sure many people have thought of it. I'm not the first one, but the people that are in power, they really don't want to hear that. They want a way to charge you. They want a way to make it really terrible, you know, for you to enter the market. Well, this is the most equitable way. It's not social equity. These are people that are already running multi-billion dollar, multi-million dollars industries in the, in the formal market. These are also small growers that are running $100,000 a year, but that's enough to take care of the whole family. There's a ton of people in that informal market that if they were had the amnesty to say, yes, I've been operating successfully for 20 years on my family farm, and now I want to transition this to the formal market and there's no fees. We're not going to come and um, put you in jail for past transgressions that literally you have amnesty to do that then this would be a, a game changer because I was just talking to another group of cultivators. It's uh, two black women. They're cultivators. They've been in business for four years and they're selling. And I asked them, I said, why are you selling? And they're like, they have three licenses and an operating cultivation right now. And they're like, we are emotionally and resource exhausted. And they're going to sell those three licenses for $700,000. And you know, who's going to buy them? Some big corporate company, they're going to give them $700,000 to get them out of debt, and then are going to go on to make multi-million dollars on these licenses. 
because they have access to capital and these two black women do not. Okay. So what do we need to do to build a coalition of women that we could all say, all right, we're going to get together and we're going to buy that license, those licenses for a measly $700,000 so that those women can continue to do what they're doing and we can all benefit. We Don't we have to make something like that happen to take care of ourselves and each other? Funny you should mention this. This is actually going to be the very first time I say this anywhere in oh. public. So it's a scoop. <laughs> Yay! You heard it here first. Though. Yes, you did. Um, I actually have created a fund. It's called the People Group. And this fund is in the middle of raising $50 million. We've already raised some of that. And it is specifically to invest in BIPOC, LGBTQ, and women-owned businesses, both licenses and and so ancillary businesses. And part of the services that the fund provides to its management company is access to people that can help you manage your books, tell you how to grow. Because you have to understand, we don't have the same financial language as people who've been doing this for decades. So we have to learn, like, how do we leverage our real estate to get more money when we get into that into that crunch because we don't have access to regular loans. And so the fund itself is going to be investing. We have a we have a deal flow data room about 20 deals deep all across the US that we're investing in and they're all BIPOC owned and they're all women owned or LGBTQ owned and being just giving access to the capital that they need and and helping them figure out how to get to profitability because they have the capital they need um, is going to be ground groundbreaking. And what's cool is that it is the first ever Latina-run cannabis fund in the history of the U.S. Woo! Congratulations. I mean, Thank you. of course you're doing this because yeah. <laughs> it's a natural trajectory for you. Um, amazing. I'm, I'm just so excited to hear that you're doing that. And I thought I heard you start to say a little bit about um, being able to also put people in place around these companies that can help them as well. Because getting the money is just the first step. Finding the right people to help you with the right advice and guidance is also really important. And I've been kind of looking at it from the women empowered in cannabis perspective where, you know, I can't give women money. I can't fund them. There's not a lot I've been able to do in the last several years to help them get over that hump. And but I'm starting to see that there are other things that we can do to one by one take the bricks out of that wall that don't require capital. And one of them is helping each other. And if, you know, if I'm an accountant and there is a woman struggling in her business because she can't get capital and I can help her by doing her books for her, that's the kind of thing that we need to start doing for each other to make us less dependent on that investment capital that is ultimately coming from a probably a white man. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting. I advise 10 companies right now from New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, California, Oregon, um, because I've been through it. Like I have to tell you with much embarrassment sometimes is how green I was when I first started to get capital for the people's dispensary. I look back sometimes and cringe at the mistakes I made with investors, not knowing what I needed in my data room. I, I kind of just learned any everything by stumbling. I don't want people that are coming up, especially as we see social equity licenses happening, are going to be opening up in New Jersey, Arizona, um, uh, New York. I don't want them to go through what I did. I made so many mistakes that I had to clean up just because I didn't know any better. And 
I didn't have the mentors I needed to help me know better because again, the way a person who is white mentors other white people is very different the way people need to mentor BIPOC people. We come from a different world. It's not that your mentorship is not valuable, but if you don't understand the difference of our financial understanding, like I had no idea and understand that I am like the top, one of the top technologists in the U S for the thing that, for the databases that I worked on, but I did not have any financial understanding on how I could leverage a million dollars into $2 million, how I could take real estate and use that as class. I didn't have that. I didn't have that financial language. And so I don't want any of the people that are coming up behind me to not have access to that financial language, not understand how they can use their assets for their company to create more revenue, to create more money for them to use to build their business. And so you're right. It requires everybody to come in and also understand and meet people where they are. If you have somebody like me who really never had anything other than a 401k, I never invested in the stock market. I didn't do anything big around funds. I didn't do any of that stuff. Even though I would have qualified as an accredited investor, I didn't know that. Um, you have to understand where people are who may only have one bank account at their you know, CDFI and have only, you know, I get money, I pay money, I get money, I paid money, who never saved money or knew how to leverage money. It's about us all figuring out how to meet these folks where they are because they didn't have access to the knowledge that a lot of other people had. And we want to give them that access. I can't tell you one of the best things I can when I'm doing my advising on Zoom is when I see it click, when I'm like, you can do this. And they're like, Really? Because that's how I am. When somebody tells me something, like I went out and got three fund managers, current fund managers to mentor me. And so they would be like, this is what you do. And I was like, really? I mean, it's a higher level than that, but I also needed that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what do you say to women and, and the BIPOC community when we're talking about that first initial friends and family or that $50,000 you need to get over the hump? And you look around and you say, I don't have any friends or family that have money that can do this for me. And yet that's kind of the investor's answer. Well, you know, good at from friends and family. But what happens when you don't have wealth around you? It's the truth, right? Um, I did not have that. Remember, I had been out of work for five years. I had not worked for five years. I had gone through my, my 401k. I had gone through my savings. I mean, I was just really barely making it. So I, I didn't, and my family comes from humble beginnings. I was probably the highest paced person in my family ever in the history of my family. Um, and there was no friends and family. So what, what I told people, what we did is we went to our communities and we said, hey, we want to do this. And we want your support to do it. And they said, yes, we're going to help you do that. Because they had been to our, our facility. They knew what we do. They knew what we were about. If you're brand new coming into the world and you just have an idea and you're not, you know, a white guy in a tie, you're not going to be able to just get a check written to you because you have an idea. So what I usually tell them is that what we need to do is put together a really great data room. So, and then go out to not the VCs and not the, um, not the hedges, but go out to the high net worth individuals that are doing impact investing, right? They want to invest impactfully. And they are really great um, avenues for these companies that may not have friends and family that don't have an existing business, but have an incredible idea or have built an incredible brand. Some of the best brands and the most sought after brands are not in the formal market. They're in the informal market. 
some of the largest brands that are selling some of the most amazing products don't exist in the formal market yet. There's great brands out of New York, out of Georgia that doesn't even have medical right now that are going to be awesome when they move into the formal market. And pretty much, I think, will eclipse a lot of the market right now in terms of the brands that are there now, because these brands are known everywhere. A lot of the brands that came up in the formal market are just getting traction now, right? But imagine if you come into the formal market and you already have a million customers. Mm-hmm. So, there are, there are, so there are brands like that that are, are going to easily be able to monetize once they come into the formal market. But otherwise, we want to get everything together and we want to look for those high net worth individuals. We're looking for patient money. I do not want, and, and this is one of the reasons for the fund that I've raised, we do not want to stress our people out to be doing something in three years. That was a tech world. We're not in a tech world. We're in a commodity world. And commodities don't work that way. So I really look to people that are interested in investing long term, especially with these companies that are going to do really well, but also need some time to get there. So what advice do you have for women and people of color and others in marginalized communities who really want to start a business in cannabis? Before, because I think a lot of people come to cannabis, they've been touched by the plant in some way, and they want to jump in feet first. But it's, you know, we started the conversation by saying this is a very challenging industry. Mm -hmm. So what specifically for those groups would you say you need to understand this before you pivot your life into this industry? I would say that if you already come from cannabis experience, meaning that your grandfather, your father, yourself has worked in the informal market, Um, and you just want to transition to the formal market, stay away from retail shops. See, retail shops are like bright and shiny things, but the money really is in the supply chain because a retail shop can't sell anything unless you have the cultivator and the manufacturer and the distributor. So if you are coming in and you want to get a license, like I'm going to go for a license, don't get a retail license. Unless it's part of a vertical, get all of the other licenses because you'll be able to sell to any dispensary. As opposed to the dispensary, you can only sell in your one shop or two shops, depending on the licenses you get. For people who've never been in the cannabis industry but are just like, I'm really interested. I don't want to do this thing anymore. I want to be in the cannabis world. I really recommend ancillary businesses, businesses where you don't require a license because the overhead is less and you can actually create a national brand because you're an ancillary business. So if you do a pipe, if you do um, a, a stash box, if you do something like that, that's something that you could actually grow nationally without having to worry about licenses anywhere. So I would say ancillary businesses are the way to go. One more other thing is to make um, royalty deals, which is something that we're doing for our product line, the People's Cannabis, royalty deals so that you can go to the manufacturers in all 35 states that are currently legal and have them manufacture your brand product. Brilliant idea. How do people find out more about licensing? Where where can they find that information? Licensing for um, the individual states? No, licensing a product across. Oh, what you would do, yeah, just if you look at any royalty, like you can look at um, uh, anybody that does white label, like really do research on white label. There's tons of information on white labeling, which is where you would go to somebody and they would put together a, a pre-roll for you. Let's just use that. That's super simple. And you're going to call it, you know, Joe Schmo's Fabulous Cannabis Pre-roll, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then by white labeling, then they pay you a royalty because you've created the brand. So like for us, We've spent five years creating the People's Dispensary brand. 
And so People's Dispensary, even though we're only in two states, is pretty much known nationally. So we can now create the People's Cannabis brand and, and, and do those royalty agreements with manufacturers in the states so that there's a People's Cannabis brand in Michigan, there's a People's Cannabis brand in Massachusetts, and there's a People's Cannabis brand product in California. And the reason I say that's so amazing is because we have a dispensary, right? So I can sell it in our dispensary or I could sell it to the 945 dispensaries um, mm-hmm. in the California, the product itself, which doesn't require me to even have a dispensary. So these are another way where you, it's very low overhead, right? You just have to make the deal with your manufacturer, understand what that's going to look. And you'll need some startup capital, but it's nothing to compare to what you're going to need if you're going to go and apply for a license. Mm-hmm. That's, a really, that's really good advice. Yeah. You are a member of the Diversity, Equality, and Inclusion Committee for uh, the National Cannabis Industry Association. Yes. What, from that lens, when you look out over the landscape of the cannabis industry... What are we doing right and what are we what do we need to work on? What are we not doing right? Where are we failing people of color and women? I think the biggest thing that where the cannabis industry fails uh, people of color communities, black communities, indigenous communities, uh, women communities is that they are really trying to follow the alcohol distribution model where in the United States there are only three major distributors. It for alcohol. So if you have an alcohol, you got to play with one of these three. We see as we're looking at all the M&A that's happening right now in the industry that they're trying to follow that, that, that logic that there's only going to be about three or four people in the industry that are able to distribute and maybe in some cases manufacture. What makes that hard is that a lot of the culture of cannabis, the thing that makes cannabis wonderful is not in the large MSOs, it is literally in the craft cannabis. It's literally in the mom and pop shops. It's literally that. This is not to say, you know, I need a Walmart. I need a Trader Joe's. I need a Whole Foods. And I need the Mandela Collective right over here in Oakland. That's a small grocer. I need all of that in the ecosystem. So what we're seeing happening right now is you see like the parent company that just did a huge buyout of the Kaliba and Left Coast with the Jay-Z brand trying to do is just dominate the market without really considering what people of color are going to do, what women-owned brands are going to do. And they do this thing, which is really upsetting to me, where they say stuff like, you know, we're going to put $10 million towards social equity. But you just raised $500 million. So why do you think $10 million, you know, you're a SPAC. Why do you think we care about $10 million? I mean, I can tell you right now as a single owner, $10 million goes really fast in the cannabis world. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? It's really, really, it goes fast, you know? Um, so I think that that's the thing I'm seeing is that all of this M&A is not taking into consideration the people from the legacy market, the informal market that are currently working in that market, people who transition like me into the formal market and small businesses. Um, and that will be such a detriment because people are going to continue to buy in the, in the informal market until the very moment that we see that diversity in cannabis. And we can tell that, right? 2020 Frontier Data did this huge... Uh, survey, and they said $20 billion is how much was spent on legal cannabis in, in 2019. 60 million, 60 billion, sorry, not million, billion, was spent in the informal market. Wow. Yeah. And so what just blows my mind, Kira, I mean, literally blows my mind. Why would these large companies 
not understand that they only have a third of the market. And if they had diversity, if they had women run businesses, if they had the people from the community that have been servicing the community in the formal market, that at least half that $60 billion moves into the, in the, in, into the formal market. So now you have a $50 billion industry just by doing something so small as providing access and support to these smaller businesses that are making the $60 billion, by the way. So I heard something disturbing I wanted to get your take on. A friend of mine is a brand rep here in the Central Valley in California, and she's always happy to put women-owned uh, brands in front of people and, and push them. And she said in the last few weeks, she's been getting a lot of pushback that nobody cares, nobody comes in asking for it, we don't care, we just want what's going to sell. And it just broke my heart to hear that. But you know, it doesn't surprise me at the same time. And what do you think we need to do to change that perception? Because I know lots of women who are looking for women-owned brands. I know people of color who want to support their communities and buy from people of color who make products. Why is there such a disconnect between retailers and consumers about this? I think the disconnect is not the consumer. I think consumers absolutely want to buy from these brands. If, they, if they're available to them, they will support those brands. I think the disconnect is with the owners and the procurement officers of these companies, not understanding that they need to do a little bit of work to make sure that their consumer base knows that they exist here. You know, in, in Portland, um, we have people that, that have, you know, you can spit in Portland and hit a dispensary. There's like a dispensary mm-hmm. every thousand feet, right? We have people that travel across Portland just to come to our shop to make sure they're supporting a mm. black and brown BIPOC owned company. Right. Um, that will happen as soon as they start to let people know, Hey, we have, you know, these products specifically by these folks. It's really on the side of the, of the people to really care about making sure that those brands are put front and center and then people will buy the brands. It's this really weird thing in the, in the, in the formal market that I see that they're like, well, we don't want to have to do any work. You're always doing work to grab a consumer. You're always doing work to retain a consumer. This is just doing the same amount of work you get for a regular consumer to make sure that they know that you have women-owned brands and that you have people of color-owned brands. It's their work. It's their work, and they don't want to do the work. Yeah, I want to start a campaign where we hand out flyers through our communities to women in BIPOC communities that basically are a flyer that they can take into the dispensary and put it on the counter and say, I want to see this in your store. Mm -hmm. And if we can flood the counters at dispensaries with our demand, we will get it. But if we don't start organizing as consumers, the Mm -hmm. industry is going to dictate to us what we have access to. Right. And we, and it's not that they, we don't want it, right? We, like you said, it's not that we don't want it. We just don't know where to get it. And you're right. If we demand as a consumer base that we want brands that are created by women or created by BIPOC people, they'll do that. And if you say to them, I'm going to go down the street next to this, to this company that does do that, I'm not going to, you know, be at your dispenser anymore. They're going to, they'll make the change, but we have to ask for that change. And I think that's a very, very good idea. Thank you. All right. So we've got a couple minutes left and I'm, I'm going to smush my last two questions into one. So mm-hmm. I want to know what you're most excited about and most concerned about when it comes to legalization. And then what are you most excited about in 2021? 
Okay, so A, I'm most excited that we might get the Smart Banking Act. You can I can't tell you that I'm most excited about this. We heard from some of our lobbyists that the reason the Smart Banking Act wasn't in um, the the $1.9 trillion relief fund is because there's a plan to pass it in the next few months. So to his mouth, to God's ears, I mean, that is such a game changer for the cannabis industry. You know, I can't tell you, I've had restaurants. And so restaurants, you're constantly getting your receipts, especially when you're going into like Christmas season with all the catering and all that good stuff. Um, you have to go to the bank and get a loan to get all the money to pre-fill those, those catering. The fact that we can't do that in cannabis, it was just so shocking to me and heartbreaking because I'm like, wow. So having the, the Smart Banking Act changes the game, not only for the large companies, but also for small companies like ours and the small companies that are existing in the market. So I'm super excited about that. I think the MORE Act will also pass, but I don't think it's going to be this year. I think that the Smart Banking Act will pass because it will be a win for the administration. They said they were going to do that. So super excited about that. The thing I'm most unhappy about, I'm not scared of it, but I'm most unhappy is the announcement yesterday that there is a new cannabis coalition. Have you read about this? No. In California or no, for the federal government, they've created a whole new coalition because there's not enough. And this coalition is made up by the alcohol and tobacco lobbyists. Oh, no. Yes. It's terrible, in my opinion. Ugh. And I say that as I, sm- I was a smoker for 28 years. I quit in 2015. And so I've been I've been clean for six years, right? Um, so I, I definitely understand tobacco. But I they, they said something like, we're going to write white papers to inform the federal government about how they should regulate the industry. And I was like... Are you kidding me right now? I mean, throw a pharmaceutical person on there. Why don't you? I mean, well, the thing that I thought was interesting, Kira, was that part of their coalition has two large convenience uh, chains. Like there's two associations for convenience stores. They're also on that. So that leads me to believe that they're going to try to put cannabis in the convenience stores. They're going to sell. So this is the thing I'm, more I'm upset about because I'm thinking to myself, uh, hello, tobacco companies, you lied for 80 years that you were cancer causing. Yes. Um, and you killed millions and millions of people. And hello, alcohol uh, companies who have been part of the addiction process forever, also responsible for millions of deaths. And you're going to give your white papers to give your policy recommendations on how to make cannabis safe. Miss me with that shit. Are you kidding me right now? So that's the thing that I'm angry about right now. I just cannot believe it. And then they have the audacity to be like, we're going to have a center of excellence with, you know, with the best people in cannabis. I don't know any of those people on there. I I know most people, I know one person on there who I really admire a lot. And I'm not saying anything negative about the people on the center of excellence, but I was like, do you really think that we don't see through you? That you're literally coming in here and say, we're going to tell you how to be the best at selling cannabis having never sold cannabis ourselves. And having no understanding of it as medicine. No, no, because they don't sell medicine, right? They sell addiction. Mm-hmm. So that's the, the for, but you know, I'm still excited about 2021. I'm just annoyed by the ridiculousness of that coalition. Okay. <laughs> um, it's awful, but I am excited about 2021. I'm excited about what's to come and what we're available for. And what I see, I think the thing I'm most excited about is that I see a lot of community engagement. Like we are advising a group of BIPOC people in Arizona right now to to 
you know, really lobby their people to make sure that they have, so they're, they're right now writing the social equity language and we've been helping them advocate for that. So we're seeing a lot more just regular people engagement in their cannabis legalization and regulation process. And I think that that will continue. We are working with a group in New York that just started a petition against the auctions and like they're doing really well. So really seeing a community engagement, not lobbyists, not people that have the ear of the senators or legislators, but literally people on the ground that are like, hey, there's something big happening here and we need to say something about it. We need to have our voices heard, which is something we didn't see in Colorado, Nevada, Washington, Oregon, and even in some cases, California at the beginning of this uh, of this legalization. So I'm excited about the people. It is exciting to see that. And, you know, I'm watching it really evolve on Clubhouse as well. All oh, yeah. Incredible community conversations that are happening. And, you know, as a community leader, it's just it it tickles me to no end to see this. It's just so with all of the challenges that cannabis presents, when you sit down in a conversation with people who are really interested in moving the community forward and protecting our investments, it's just life affirming. It really is. Yeah. All right, Christine, where can people reach you or find out more about the people's dispensary? Sure. So you can always go to thepeoplesdispensary.com to find out about what we're doing, what our policy platforms are, um, how we're working in the industry, not only from selling cannabis, but also advocating that communities and people of color and women have access to both cannabis as products and cannabis as businesses. Across all social media, I'm known as Miss Chris, which is M-I-Z-C-H-R-I-S. And you can find that on LinkedIn, TikTok, um, uh, Instagram, Facebook, all of that. So yeah, that's how you can find me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Christine, for your time and for sharing your journey with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me, Kira. I appreciate you. Thank you, ladies, for tuning in. If you haven't yet joined the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, go to our brand new website at womenempoweredincannabis.com. There you'll find lots of information on our new membership offerings for women working in cannabis. WEIC is a community that provides resources, connections, events, and content to women working in cannabis in the U.S., Canada, and around the world where there's an interest in cannabis legalization. We welcome women who are currently working in cannabis or curious about taking a leap into the industry. Consider becoming a supporting member or supporting business for benefits and access across the network. Join us next week for another conversation with women leading in cannabis. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, I'm Gary, and I invite you to discover the Cannabis Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on a Canadian's cannabis culture. I would be the Canadian, and my cannabis passion and culture has been building for five decades. I share that passion for this wonderful plant in every episode, through conversations with cannabis advocates and enthusiasts, stories about the ever-changing legal environment, and some hands-on testing of product in a segment I call Cultivar Corner. The Cannabis Podcast, a Canadian's cannabis culture, one token at a time.